Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. <clears throat> now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Hello and welcome. This is John Morgan with the Just Science Podcast, a production of the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence and RTI International. Welcome to the first season of Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. As we open the season, we're going to be giving you episodes focusing on numbers, issues that forensic scientists face with error, data, proof of data. We'll be talking about new technologies and systems that are providing more efficient ways of delivering quantitative results, as well as human factors that go into producing solid data. We want to kick the season off by taking a step back and introducing you to one of the uh, godfathers of forensic science, Barry Fisher. We're going to dive deep into Barry's legacy, which goes back all the way to the 1960s. Before there even was a Society of Crime Lab Directors, or there were such things as the FBI Technology Working Groups. And we're going to be talking about leadership in the crime laboratory, which is really the anchor for how we can improve the confidence of the public in our casework and analysis and the results that come out of the crime laboratory. Our guest today is going to be Barry Fisher, the former director of the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department Crime Laboratory. He started being the crime laboratory director back in 1987 and continued for quite a long time. When did you actually retire, Barry? I retired in 2009. 2009. So you actually were, for 22 years, the director of the LA Sheriff's Crime Lab, right? Yes. One of the reasons why I wanted to have Barry on to our uh, podcast is because not only of his long tenure as a crime laboratory director, but also long tenure as a leader within the forensic science community. I've only been involved in forensic science since roughly 2002 when I started at NIJ, a refugee from the scientific community, and got to know Barry fairly quickly because he's been a vocal advocate for the forensic science community for a very, very long time and is a couple of different things. One is a holder of a lot of the history of forensic science and forensic science improvement over a long period of time. And something I think, and I hope this isn't a mischaracterization or a characterization you don't like, Barry, but kind of the godfather in some respects of forensic science, somebody who has been a, uh, a steward of uh, the leadership and on the interests of uh, forensic science. Do you think that's a fair characterization, Barry? Well, that's awfully kind, but there are many, many people that came before me that did lots of things. I just kept pushing that boulder up the side of the mountain, and it slipped a few times, but I and people who've continued after I left the scene have been doing a yeoman's job. Oh, well, I don't consider you to have left the scene quite yet, so we haven't sent you off into the grand sunset quite yet, Barry. <laughs> Before we get into too much of the detail of your background, RTI just was fortunate to get a grant from the Arnold Foundation to start a National Forensic Science Academy on leadership and management in the crime laboratory. Barry was very helpful in us getting that award, and our intention is to create an academy to improve management and leadership within the crime laboratory community. So you graduated City University of New York with a BS degree in chemistry. When you started in chemistry, did you think you were going to go into forensic science? I didn't even know what forensic science was, to be honest. <laughs> it was not on my radar screen. I was looking forward to going to graduate school. Uh, after City College, I went to Purdue University. I was in a PhD program looking to become an organic 
chemistry researcher. As life would have it, I met my wife after my uh, first year. Things started to happen, and my studies went down the toilet bowl, as they say. It was strange because my advisor called me into his office, right, and said, Barry, you're just not focused. I think it's time for you to move on. We'll give you the master's degree. Just go away. (laughs) (laughs) But as it turned out, it was the best thing that could have happened to me because heaven knows where I would be at this point. So anyway, I moved out to Los Angeles and I started to look around for jobs and there just weren't a whole lot of jobs at the time. Los Angeles or Southern California was kind of a chemistry backwater. One of the places I sent a resume was to the California Department of Human Resources. And I get a call from this guy saying, I I think we have a job for you. I said, "Uh, oh, what's it about? He says to me, did you ever watch the TV show Perry Mason? (laughs) I said, huh? He said, well, it's just like that. So I went down for an interview. I guess they liked me because they did offer me a job as I was sitting there. This was back in uh, 1969. And I said to the uh, interviewers, you know, I have a little problem. I'm going to be drafted because I'm no longer a full-time student. He said, no, don't worry about that. We will take care of it. And true to form, they had the uh, L.A. County Sheriff at the time, Peter Pitches, send a letter to my draft board back in the Bronx Several weeks later, I got a critical skills deferment. So they uh, they had me body and soul. <laughs> <laughs> History could have been different. Such serendipity for all of us, I think, in terms of where we wind up. That's right. But anyway, I started there in May of 1969 as a criminalist one doing toxicology and DUI cases. When I was doing DUI cases, I would be running around to courts throughout L.A. County uh, was 10 times in one week. So you really were able to polish your testimonial skills. That ability served me well as I graduated into more serious crimes. It took you about 10 years to become the chief criminalist. So what did that mean in the department at that time? What did you oversee as the chief criminalist? Well, uh, a little background on that. After I started at the sheriff's department, I kind of recognized that I didn't want to stay in criminalistics or forensic science forever. I wanted to go into industry, and I I figured, well, I'm not going to be able to get a PhD on a part-time basis, but maybe an MBA was doable. At the time, President Nixon had... uh, created this uh, program for anybody working in law enforcement where they could get free education. Coincidentally, I think uh, NIJ or LEAP funds, I believe, sponsored that. And uh, I went to school at night for about four years and picked up uh, an MBA degree. And when a position for this chief criminalist position came up, I applied and was successful. Now, that position was responsible for all of the scientists in the laboratory. Laboratories at least in the sheriff's department, were made up of both civilian and sworn personnel. The police personnel were in the uh, fingerprint unit, the firearms, the question documents areas. Chief criminalist was not responsible for supervising those. Those were under police command. I, on the other hand, had toxicology, the drug testing, the uh, trace evidence, the uh, serology at the time, which is forensic biology. Uh, those areas. So it was a portion of the overall crime lab as it stood at that time. 
we owe your rise to some extent to Richard Nixon. But um, but in fact, you were getting one over on Nixon because you just said that you were intending to get out into industry. The reason you were taking the MBA wasn't because you had a vision of how to manage and do business administration within the crime laboratories because you wanted to get out into industry, weren't you? That's a fact. But what happened was while I was going to school, I literally, and I say this unabashedly, yeah. fell in love with forensic science. I mean, it became a passion. But what I liked about it was that no day was the same as the day before. And you had this real sense that you were using your academic skills and training to, in some way, make the world a little better by trying to use science to improve the criminal justice system. It just felt right to me. The other thing that was really cool, I quickly learned, it was a showstopper when you were in social events. You know, people would go around, well, what do you do, what do you do? And you'd say, well, I work in a crime lab. And the room would become silent and people would start listening to what you had to say. And that was, I thought that was kind of cool. <laughs> Forensic science has been been cool for, for since well before CSI. They just uh, Hollywood finally caught on, right, uh, I, I think. Right. So, uh, so you became the crime lab director just eight years after that, 1987. Prior to them establishing a crime lab director spot, the uh, the laboratory was uh, well, the entire bureau. It was called Scientific Services Bureau, which contained the the crime laboratory, the fingerprint functions, the photography, polygraph, uh, all of these things was uh, headed up by a captain. That captain was about to retire. I guess there was a decision to begin to put civilians in some of those uh, positions, probably as a cost savings. And and also, I, I think the cost savings probably came first, but secondly, that in some of these technical areas, it might be better to have a, a technical expert running the operation rather than just a police individual. Anyway, I was selected uh, for this uh, thing, and all of a sudden, I, I was uh, overseeing not only the, the scientists, but a whole bunch of police as, as well who were working in the laboratory. And, and that was a bit of a challenge because uh, managing police and managing civilians is different. It's kind of like in the military, you, you have the uh, the army folks and then the civilians that work there. You know, they see their roles uh, pretty different. That's certainly the case in, in law enforcement arena. Barry mentions managing police and managing civilians is very different. It wasn't so long ago that in a crime laboratory, it wasn't unusual for everyone to be a police officer, uniformed, sworn police officer. Even in the FBI, that was the rule as opposed to the exception. Um, as recently as the 1970s. But we recognize now that it's important to have a professional class of scientists who provide objective information, objective results that increase the confidence of the public in forensic science. And so we're very, very pleased to have leaders in the crime laboratory who are technical experts. But of course, we also need to make sure that those technical experts have the leadership and management training that they need. I point you and we'll have on the podcast page links to resources in leadership and management, including some new coursework we're developing out of the FTCOE for leadership training that's designed specifically for forensic scientists. 
One of the things I think you and I both agree on is in order to know where you're going to go, you need to know where you've been. I, knowing the history of all this stuff is important and, and it gets lost, I think, don't you? I think that's the case. There's a lot of uh, things. I think I mentioned to you, I go to some of these forensic conferences and people are still talking about things that we have been dealing with for maybe 20 years. It just gets lost as uh, a lack of institutional memory, I think. And it's unfortunate because there's a lot of lessons that you've learned over the years and that others have learned over the years. And we just, when you lose that institutional knowledge, it can set you back right to where you started. In some cases, that's true, but I think that's a fair statement. I, I still, to this day, don't think uh, police departments understand the value of the forensic sciences to, um, to, to their survival. I mean, it, it adds a level of legitimacy to the rule of law that the police are meant to establish that is critical. And has to be right. Well, that's that's one of the challenges, and I think people who are in the forensic science business and management must toot their own horns so their higher-ups understand the importance of things that they're doing. And even if you are not the type of person that particularly likes doing that, you have to balance it in some way. If things are moving along smoothly, uh, they don't know you exist. But uh, heaven forbid, if something terrible happens, then they know quickly. I think it's important that we recognize how, how uh, vital it is for a forensic scientist to educate police and other folks in the criminal justice system about the importance of the crime lab. Uh, you know, there are plenty of police chiefs that really don't understand how vital forensic science is. If you have a problem in the crime laboratory, we, we've seen this in places as diverse as Detroit and Boston and Houston and elsewhere, it reflects on the police department and it can even cost that police chief his or her job if the crime lab isn't, uh, isn't working well. So it's important for the forensic scientists to keep those lines of communication open to all of the rest of the parts of the criminal justice system. You know, we always complain about not having enough resources. If we aren't keeping those lines of communication open and educating everybody about the importance of forensic science, then it's really on forensic science. Yeah. There was, you know, some potential for a crisis. I mean, uh, is there a particular crisis that stands out to you that you look back on and say, that teaches a lot of lessons and, and I'm glad we figured out how to survive that? Well, I've gone through a number of crises. Probably my biggest was we had an individual who was dry labbing drug tests. We determined what was going on. We went to our internal affairs people. We relieved the person of duty and sent her home. And the perception of the department was that this should never have happened if I was paying more attention to what was going on in the lab. And I pointed out, well, I discovered this situation. I acted exactly as I was supposed to act. And now you're telling me that I'm at fault? Well, yeah. I mean, I worry because I was reading the paper that you were on with Jennifer Manukin on uh, establishing a research culture in the crime laboratory. And the paper talks an awful lot about how to deal with errors in the laboratory and identifying them and dealing with them and that kind of thing. But it talks about this dichotomy that exists between the overall criminal justice system, the legal community in particular, of course, and science. It advocates for this idea that there needs to be a research focus in the crime laboratory. And I think uh, in some respects, a research focus is excellent because in scientific research, error is what's interesting. You elucidate it. That's where the research needs to be, and you embrace it. 
in the legal community, in the policing community, in the courts, <laughs> they don't like it. They frown upon it enormously. I think sometimes the legal framework has a chilling effect on the resolution, on revealing error and being able to deal with it appropriately. I couldn't agree with you more. And this whole business about uh, research culture, I was a minority voice in that group of authors because I kept on pointing out that crime labs are not the place where research ought to be done. Research ought to be done in academic institutions with assistance with uh, consulting of, of laboratories, but the laboratories themselves really are not in a position to do the kind of research that you're thinking about. We are trying to get the work out. Most of the laboratories tend to be on the small side. And with the exception of, say, the FBI and some of the larger federal laboratories who do conduct research and are in a position to do it, state and local laboratories are not the places to be doing a whole bunch of that kind of research. Furthermore, if they come up with something that speaks positively in what they're doing on a regular basis, the defense bar is likely to say, well, of course they're going to say that, you know, <laughs> It's in their best interest. They're not going to come out and say that the work that they're doing is just a bunch of hooey. If they come out and say it's good stuff, uh, it's, it's going to be looked down on. Yeah. And when I think of the word leadership in the crime laboratory, I think of somebody who's able to recognize the fact that there's going to be errors, that you're going to have to deal with them, and not letting – the ramifications of that get in their way. They would rather have the light shed on, even if there is going to be some heat to go with it. And you know, I know a lot of people who are very good at that, but I've also known a lot of people who've been victimized as crime laboratory directors for taking that view. Right. You see, the problem is that the criminal justice system, the lawyers, the judges, the juries would like to hear absolutes. You know, they're used to what they see on CSI and whatnot. That's just something that is not feasible. And I know uh, there are individuals out there like my friend and colleague, Peter Neufeld, who will say that if you can't define what an error rate is, you shouldn't be testifying about that in court or judges shouldn't allow that to be admissible. I think that the straightforward answer is to explain to juries, look, here are the strengths and weaknesses of this technology. We know so much, but we don't know everything. And in my opinion, there is an association between this and that. I can't tell you that it's 100% correct, but I think it's a very strong uh, connection. Ultimately, that's the best you're going to be able to do in most of the technical things that you're talking about in the courtroom. And I think that experts, people in laboratories who are presenting this kind of evidence need to be able to explain things in that context and not be the way it was, say, 15, 20 years ago with, for example, fingerprints. It's a make, no two prints came from the same person or ever will come from the same person or ever came from the same person. Those things are nice to be able to say, but they're unsupportable from a statistical standpoint, and you have to start playing that statistical game. Well, you know, in some respects, when you started off, you were in the area that it's, that it's easy. You were a chemist and you applied that as a form of toxicology, and the error bars come right out of that. But it's much more difficult for fingerprints, isn't it? Well, it's much difficult in many of the things that you're doing in laboratories because they don't come up through the academic side of science. So, say, uh, tool marks or firearms. There are no schools giving PhDs in, in these subjects. They haven't been that well studied. There's a lot of anecdotal information, a lot of trial and error 
other kinds of things that people have done, but we're only now starting to look at some of the statistics behind that stuff. It's only recently starting to peek into courtroom testimony that people can give some numbers associated with these types of testing that they're doing. But herein lies the interesting problem. If you get into heavy-duty statistics with the average jury, or any jury for that matter, they're not going to know what the heck you're talking about if you're talking about the sigmas, confidence ratios, and Bayesian statistics and whatnot. You're going to be putting people to sleep. You have to be able to explain what it is you're doing and be ready for the other side to really start digging around. And there are all kinds of problems associated with that kind of testimony, yet that's exactly where it's going. One of the things I think that's interesting for you is that in the Scientific Services Bureau, you actually oversaw the fingerprint examiners too, isn't that right? Yep. And the crime scene investigators. Yes, I did. And that's that's insanely unusual. Was that just an outgrowth of the fact that the sheriff's department was just sort of the general place where you got those kinds of services? It was just historical. The fingerprint function in the laboratory actually got started back in the 19-teens doing fingerprints and photography. It wasn't until much later that other disciplines started to come in and they started to grow and develop in that kind of area. And it's just historical. Recently, uh, the LAPD laboratory that was set up very much along the same lines as the sheriff's lab is actually one of the very first labs in the United States to get started, split off the fingerprint functions and the crime scene functions from the laboratory per se broke it into a a different division from the laboratory. It's just an organizational thing. But organization matters, right? I mean, we do run along the lines that Peter Neufeld suggests. How is that reform going to get implemented when you have so many different organizational ways in which fingerprints are done? Your crime scene is actually more important than handling of evidence is the first challenge of forensic science, isn't it? The one group that has to step up are the courts. They have to take to heart the recommendations found in the National Academy of Sciences report published back in 2009 and require that people that testify in court are certified and the laboratories are accredited. Now, that is nice to have. It's not a requirement. And once it starts to become a requirement, then things will start to happen. That will force police agencies to adopt these positions. If you look at digital evidence, for example, that's one of the hot topics today. Digital evidence in many places around the country are outside of laboratories. They're not part of laboratories, and only a handful of them are involved with accreditation, for example. If the digital evidence function is within the laboratory, then there's a much higher likelihood of being accredited than not. So if the court said, okay, this is scientific information, and in order to be admissible in court, these are the steps that have to be done. When that happens, then these things will be put in the right position. Do you think the organizational aspects are secondary to the courts being more cognizant of what standards there should be, and of course, the standards themselves, the quality assurance programs, the QAQC programs, and so on. Right. And the key mover on this whole thing is the defense bar. I stand up and applaud aggressive defense attorneys that ask these tough questions of crime labs and experts 
because that will force the whole thing forward. Left alone, it will continue to be in the current state of affairs. Well, uh, Barry, we have so much to talk about. We'll have to have you back on another time so we can go deeper into this and explore some of these issues in, in more detail. But it's been just delightful, just great to have you on. And And thank you very much for taking the time. Well, it was my pleasure, John, and I look forward to doing this again sometime in the future. I want to thank Barry for his participation in this podcast. It's been really exciting. He's also been helping out so much on all the work that we've been doing in leadership training uh, under the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. He played a big role in helping us develop the 12-course series in Leadership for Forensic Science And he also played a a role in our independent project with the Arnold Foundation on the National Forensic Science Academy, which is developing a certification program for management and leadership training for forensic scientists. And that's, that's all very, very exciting stuff. And I think Barry showing his career of leadership in the forensic laboratory uh, demonstrates how important uh, those, those principles are and those skills um, and uh, in, in the crime laboratory. If you'd like to learn more about the work that Barry has done, please visit our website, www.forensiced.org slash Just Science Podcast. Here's what we're talking about next week on Just Science. The challenges in human factors. A lot of the decisions that we end up making depend on things that I think people may not think about. I was thinking, what is psychology have to do with forensic science? If done correctly, it's an incredibly valuable tool for the manager. Some folks who would argue that what you should be doing is completely removing the human from the equation. Humans clearly must have access to information that the computer models don't have. So, the stuff he was describing about looking for the diagnostic areas and the eye tracking and the way that I approach a new mark that I've never seen before. If that sounds like a kumbaya statement, so be it.